This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com slash free books to read other articles. He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth L. Gentry Jr. Copyright 1992 Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Chapter 4 Introduction to Postmillennialism The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1 We do not hold with the philosophy of linguistic analysis that problems of definition lie at the heart of all ambiguity. Yet often enough, carefully defining a theological position will help correct many unnecessary misconceptions. Probably more than any of the three other evangelical views, postmillennialism has suffered distortion through improper definition by its opponents. In this chapter, I will attempt to set forth a succinct theological explanation of postmillennialism as well as briefly to engage the question of postmillennialism's historic origins. Confusion regarding postmillennialism It is remarkable that there are some noted theologians who do not appear to have an adequate working definition of postmillennialism. This leads them to misclassify certain postmillennial scholars. For instance, for instance, dispensational theologians are notorious for classifying leading postmillennial scholars like Benjamin B. Warfield and O.T. Ellis as all-millennialists. One has even misidentified W.G.T. Shedd as an all-millennialist. In Warfield's case, this mis- misconception is based largely on his view of Revelation 20, despite his many clear statements elsewhere regarding postmillennialism. This illustrates anew the inordinate role of Revelation 20 in the eschatological debate. In Alice's case, this his silence regarding his eschatological persuasion in his classic Prophecy in the Church seems to partly be responsible for this confusion. He is assumed by many to be amillennial, and since postmillennialism, which some critics do not understand, is presumed dead. Walvoord writes in this regard, A new type of amillennialism has arisen, however, of which Warfield can be taken as an example, which is accurately a, a totally new type of amillennialism. Chafer, 1948, Ryrie, 1953, Pentecost, 1958, Culver, 1977, Feinberg, 1980, Johnson, 1983, and Leitner, 1990, promote the same Warfield as amillennialist error. Ryrie continues his error earlier, Ryrie continues his earlier error when he comments in 1986. Though Augustinian amillennialism is generally followed in is generally followed in this modern time, another form of amillennialism, amillennialism arose. B.B. Warfield taught that the millennium is the present state of the saints in heaven. Of Alice, Pentecost writes, Amillennialism today is divided into two camps, the first of which Alice and Burkhoff are adherents. Walvoords follows suit. However, in view of the evidence that many amillennialists Amillarians consider it as Alice does. Culver, C. Feinberg, Ryrie, and J. Fernberg and Leitner concur. It is clear from Warfield himself, as well as other eschatological writers, that he was a postmillennialist. While expressingly discussing the premillennial and postmillennial positions, Warfield writes of his own view. The scriptures do promise to the church a golden age, when the conflict with the forces of evil in which it is engaged has passed into victory. The golden age of the church is the adorning of the bride for her 
husband, and is the preparation for his coming, precisely what the risen Lord, who has been head over all things for his church, is doing through these years that stretch between his first and second comings, is conquering the world to himself, and the world is is to be nothing less than a converted world. The ministry which Paul exercised, and which every one who follows him in proclaiming the gospel exercises with him, is distinctly the ministry of reconciliation, not of testimony merely, but of reconciliation. It has its object and is itself the proper means of the, of the actual reconciliation of the whole world. Interestingly, Alice in his book that is widely cited by dispensationalists even calls Warfield a postmolarian who looked for a future golden age of the church on earth. More interesting is the resistance of one dispensationalist to admit that he suspects may be the case in this regard. Speaking of modern amillennialism, B.B. Warfield School, Culver writes, I have called Warfield an amillennialist because he denies any connection of the thousand-year reign of Christ or his saints on earth, either after Christ's coming or before it. It may be true, as former students of his classes have told me, that he regarded himself as a postmillennialist. That Alice was a postmillennial is evident as well. In his foreword to Roderick Campbell's postmillennial work, Israel and the New Covenant, Alice wrote, My own studies in this and related fields have convinced me that the most serious error in which much of the current prophetic teaching of today is the claim that the future of Christendom is to be read not in terms of revival and victory, but of growing impotence and apostasy. The language of the Great Commission is world-embracing, and it has back of it the authority and power of the one who said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. The duty of the church is to address herself to the achieving of this task in anticipation of her Lord's coming and not to expect him to call her away to glory before her task is accomplished. Although his postmillennialism is not clearly spelled out in his classic study, Prophecy in the Church, it is in this foreword and elsewhere. A careful definition of an eschatological system will help to keep one from making such mistaken identifications. Hence, the significance of this chapter. A definition of postmillennialism. The dispensational error in defining non-premillennial eschatological systems is traceable to the following on Revelation 20. In its assumption that this passage controls those systems, as is evident in the Culver quotation above, the postmillennialist, however, is reluctant to begin systematic definition with one of the last and most symbolic books of the Bible. Consequently, the much-debated Revelation 20 passage is, frankly, not determinative for postmillennialism. An appropriate systematic definition of postmillennialism would include a number of key elements. It should be understood, of course, that the ancient church fathers who held optimistic expectations for the progress of Christianity and who may be called postmillennial would not hold to a full-blown systematic postmillennialism as outlined below. This is as true for postmillennialism as is for premillennialism. It must be conceded that the advanced and detailed theology of pre-tribulationalism is not found in the Fathers, but neither is any other detailed and established exposition of premillennialism. The development of the most important doctrines took centuries. Bearing this in mind, let us consider the nature of postmillennialism. First, postmillennialism is that system of eschatology which understands the messianic kingdom to have been founded upon the earth during the earthly ministry and through the redemptive labors of the Lord Jesus Christ. This establishment of the kingdom of heaven was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic expectation. 
The kingdom which Christ preached and presented was not something other than expected by the Old Testament saints. In postmillennialism, the church becomes the transformed Israel being called the Israel of God. Galatians 6, verse 16. Second, the fundamental nature of that kingdom is essentially redemptive and spiritual rather than political and corporal. Although it has implications for the political realm, postmillennialism is not essentially political, competing with temporal, temporal nations for governmental rule. Christ rules his kingdom spiritually in and through his people in the world, representation as well as by his universal providence. Third, because of the intrinsic power and design of Christ's redemption, his kingdom will exercise a transformational socio-cultural influence in history. This will occur as more and more people are converted to Christ, not by a minority revolt and seizure of political power. The essential distinctive of postmillennialism is its scripturally derived, sure expectation of gospel prosperity for the church during the present age. Fourth, postmillennialism thus expects the gradual developmental expansion of the kingdom of Christ in time and on earth. This expansion will proceed by means of the full-orbed ministry of the word, fervent and believing prayer, and the consecrated labors of his spirit-filled people. Christ's personal presence on earth is not needed for the expansion of his kingdom. All of this kingdom expansion will be directed and blessed by the ever-present Christ, who is now enthroned as king at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over the earth. Fifth, post-millennialism confidently anticipates a time in earth history, continuous with the present, in which the very gospel already operative in the world will have won the victory throughout the earth in fulfillment of the Great Commission. The thing that distinguishes the biblical post-millennialist, then, from amillennialists and premillennialists is his belief that the scripture teaches the success of the Great Commission in the age of the church. During that time, the overwhelming majority of men and nations will be Christianized, righteousness will abound, wars will cease, and prosperity and safety will flourish. Of the post-millennial kingdom that at its fullest expression, David Brown writes, It will be marked by the universal reception of the true religion and unlimited subjection to the scepter of Christ. It shall be a time of universal peace. It will be characterized by great temporal prosperity. It should be noted at this juncture that there are some important differences between two types of postmillennialism, pietistic and theonomic postmillennialism. Among current post-mills, to be sure, there are some who are not Reconstructionists. Non-Reconstructionist post-mills would naturally deny any such con- connection between theonomic ethics and post-millennialism. Pietistic post-millennialism, as found in Banner of Truth Circles, denies that the post-millennial advance of the kingdom involves the total transformation of culture through the application of biblical law. Theonomic post-millennialism affirms this. Seventh, possibly we can look forward to a great golden age of spiritual prosperity continuing for centuries, or even for millenniums, during which time Christianity shall triumph over all the earth. After this extended period of gospel prosperity, earth history will be drawn to a close by the personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ, accompanied by his a literal resurrection and a general judgment, to introduce his blood-bought people into a consummative and eternal form of the kingdom, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Confusion regarding millennial development. Unfortunately, serious errors have brought distortion into the understanding of the historical rise of millennial views. A recent work comments, The early church was solidly childistic until the time of Augustine. Another boldly asserts that the church from the beginning was premillennial in belief. 
Still, another states that a premillennial belief was the universal belief in the church for 250 years after the death of Christ. This is commonly heard today. Frequently, the false historical data is traceable to the seriously flawed and long discredited claims of George and H. Peters. Peters commented on premillennialism in history. Now, let the student reflect. Here are two centuries in which positively no direct opposition whatever arises against our doctrine. His claims, though still persisting and highly regarded by some, has been shown to be quite erroneous. Because my primary concern is to provide data for tracing the rise of postmillennialism, I will only briefly comment on the general historical confusion regarding postmillennialism, but it does deserve at least some passing comment. The errors of Peter's analysis and others like it have been exposed by a number of scholars. The three leading most detailed and helpful are Alan Patrick Boyd, a dispensationalist, D.H. Krominga, a premillennialist, and Ned Stonehouse, an amillennialist. Also noteworthy are studies by Louis Burkhoff, Philip Schaeff, and Albertus Peters, and W.J. Greyer. Krominga carefully examines the sub-apostolic writings including Clement of Rome's First Clement, the Pseudo-Clementine Second Clement, the Didaci, the Ignatian Epistles, Polycarp's Epistle, the Letter of the Church at Smyrna on the Martyrdom of Polycarp, Barnabas, Hermas, Dognatius, Fragments of Papias, and Relics of the Elders. He convincingly shows that only Papias among the sub-apostolic the sub-apostolic followers is premillennial. He concludes that an inquiry into the extent of ancient childism will serve to show the unattainableness of the claim that this doctrine was held with practical unanimity by the church of the first few centuries. Put in the very best light, the most that Peter could say of it is, it would seem that very early in the post-apostolic era, malarianism was, was regarded as a mark neither of orthodoxy nor of heresy but as one permissible opinion among others within the range of permissible opinions. Dispensationalist Leitner has admitted that none of the major creeds of the Church include premillennialism in their statements, not even the 2nd century Apostles' Creed. In fact, early millennialism was held mostly among Jewish converts. A few apostolic followers held it as individuals, but those who did not mention the millennium had greater weight of authority and influence. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp. This is borne out by premillennialism's failure to receive creedal status. Even Tertullian and Irenaeus, who were premillennial, record brief creeds with no allusions to a millennium. What has happened to the evidence for pervasive premillennialism? Peter's mistakes were powerfully analyzed and conclusively rebutted in a 1977 Dallas Theological Seminary's master thesis by dispensationalist Alan Patrick Boyd. According to Boyd, he originally undertook the thesis to bolster the dispensational system by patristic research, but the evidence of the original sources simply disallow this. He ends up lamenting that this writer believes that the church rapidly fell from New Testament truth, and this is very evident in the realm of eschatology. Only in modern times has New Testament eschatological truth been recovered. As a consequence of this research, Boyd urges his fellow dispensationalists to avoid reliance on men like N.H. Peters whose historical conclusions regarding premillennialism in the early church have proven to be largely in error. Boyd goes on to admit that it would seem wise for the modern dispensational system to abandon the claim that it is the historical faith of the church. Avrari's bold statement that 
Premillennialism is the Historic Faith of the Church, he states, It is the conclusion of this thesis that Dr. Ryrie's statement is historically invalid within the chronological framework of this thesis. Boyd even states, This validates the claim of L. Burkhoff. It is not correct to say, as premillennialists do, that it, millennialism, was generally accepted in three, the first three centuries. The truth of the matter is that the adherents of this doctrine were of a rather limited number. It is clear upon reading certain of the ancient advocates of premillennialism they faced opposition from orthodox non-millennialists. For instance, consider Justin Martyr's response to Trifos regarding the hope of a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built. Justin replied, I admitted to you formerly, and I and many others are of this opinion, and believe that such will take place as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signify to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Note to the reference, many who think otherwise. There is no unanimity regarding the millennium. Another premillennialist, Irenaeus, C.A.A.D. 180, observes that some who are reckoned among the Orthodox do not hold to this premillennial view. Eusebius, AD 325, points to a premillennialist papist in explaining the spread of premillennialism, but it was due to him that so many, yet not all, of the church fathers after him adopted a like opinion, urging in their own support the antiquity of the man. The fact that premillennialism was in no way approaching universal in its extent is evident also in that of Dionysus, A.D. 190-264. Successfully dealt with this doctrine in a certain area where it prevailed and split entire churches. He won the day in that Egyptian district and in turns the majority away from premillennialism. Later, Epiphanius, A.D. 315-403, wrote, There is indeed a millennium mentioned by St. John, but the most and those pious men look upon those words as true indeed, but to be taken in a spiritual sense. The Origin of Postmillennialism Can competent with the confusion as to the proper identity of certain modern postmillennialists and an unbalanced perception of the early influence of premillennialism is a widespread confusion regarding the origins of postmillennialism. One dispensationalist has stated of postmillennialism, its advocates admit that it was first taught in the 17th century. There are also those who wrongly assume that postmillennialism may be traced back only as far as Dana Whitby in 1703. Often Whitby is alleged to be the or- originator of what is known as postmillennialism. This is the argument of Wayne House, at the time a Des- Dallas Seminarian professor, and Thomas Ice. Daniel Whitby first put forth his view in a popular work entitled Paraphrase and Commentary on the New Testament, 1703. It was at the end of this work that he sets forth what he calls in his own A New Hypothesis on the Millennial Reign of Christ. Thus, the system called Postmillennialism was born in the early 1700s as a hypothesis. Whitby and his modern followers present their arguments and explanations based upon unproven assumptions, assumptions resulting in a hypothesis rather than something which is the actual fruit and study of Scripture or even the voice of the Church. It should be noted that Whitby was not the founder of postmillennialism, even of its more systematic modern expression. Rodney Peterson writes that this perspective had undergone changes, particularly since Tom and Brightman, who lived from 1562 to 1607. 
Brightman, who died in 1607, was one of the fathers of Presbyterianism in England. His post-millennial views were set forth in detail in his book, A A Revelation of the Revelation. In fact, this work is considered to be the most important and influential English revision of the Reformed Augustinian concept of the millennium. This was a century before Whitby's 1703 article. Whitby was helpful in popularizing postmillennialism because he presented postmillennialism's most influential formulation. Ball categorically denies Whitby's foundational role. Whitby was simply not the founder of postmillennialism. He was a modern systematizer. At this very date, it is time for dispensational authors to retract their previous statements regarding Whitby as the founder of postmillennialism. Early Origins of Postmillennialism It is clear that postmillennialism has undergone much systemization in the post-Reformation era. In its simplest form, however, adumbrations of it appear in antiquity. Simply put, postmillennialism is the view that Christ will return to the earth after the spirit-blessed gospel has has had overwhelming success in bringing the world to the adoption of Christianity. Obviously, Systemization is developmental, issuing from the diligent labors of many minds over a period of time as they build on the research of those that have gone before them. There should be no problem with the slow developmental systemization, for dispensationalists can even write, the futurist interpretation is the approach used by the earliest church fathers. We do not argue that they had a sophisticated system, but the clear futurist elements were there. I argue similarly for postmillennialism. After all, did not Ryrie argue regarding dispensationalism's recency? Informed dispensationalists recognized that as a system, dispensationalism was largely formulated by Darby, that, but that outlines of the dispensationalist approach to the scriptures are found much earlier. There are indicators in antiquity of a genuine hope for the progress of the gospel in history. Premillennialist Crominga has noted that although most Montanists were premillennialists, others were at least containing also the terms for later for full-fledged postmillennialism. This nascent postmillennialism was resultant from the hope rooted in scripture that there would be a period of the Holy Spirit's dominance in the affairs of history. This perspective on the future of the church had considerable influence in the thinking of other church fathers. Oregon, AD 185 through 254. Although much in Oregon is unacceptable, he is a noteworthy church father of considerable influence. As Philip Schaeff has noted regarding Oregon's views, there was in them a place for the great evidencing of the power of the gospel. Such a mighty revolution as the conversion of the heathen emperor was not dreamed of even as a remote possibility, except perhaps by the far-sighted Oregon. Oregon seems to have been the only one in the age of violent persecution who expected that Christianity, by continual growth, would gain the dominion over the whole world. Oregon comments, It is evident that even the barbarians, when they yield obedience to the word of God, will become most obedient to the law and most humane, and every form of worship will be, will be destroyed except the religion of Christ, which will alone prevail. And indeed, it will one day triumph as, it is, as its principles take possession of the minds of men more and more every day. 
This sort of statement is the essence of postmillennial optimism. Eusebius, AD 260-340 In Eusebius, there is an even fuller expression of hope that is evident. In Book 10 of his Ecclesiastical History, he is convinced he is witnessing the dawning of the fulfillment of Old Testament kingdom prophecies. Of Psalms 108, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 46, verses 8 and 9, which he specifically cites, which, which he specifically cites, he writes that he is rejoicing in these things which have, have been clearly fulfilled in our day. Later in chapters 4 through 7 of book 10, he cites dozens of other passages as coming to fulfillment. He writes, For it was necessary and fitting that as her, the church's shepherd and lord, had once tasted death for her, and after his suffering and had changed that vile body which he assumed in her behalf into a splendid and glorious body, leading the very flesh which had been delivered from corruption to incorruption, that she too should enjoy the dispensations of the Savior. After quoting several passages from Isaiah, Eusebius writes, These are the things which Isaiah foretold, and which were anciently recorded concerning us in sacred books. And it was necessary that we should sometime learn their truthfulness by their fulfillment. Of Christ, he writes, What God or hero yet, as he has done, has set aside all gods and heroes among civilized or barbarous nations, bar barbarous nations, has ordained that divine honor should be withheld from all, and claimed obedience to that command, and then, through singly, through singly conflicting with the power of all, has utterly destroyed the opposing hosts, victorious over the gods and heroes of every age, and causing himself alone in every region of the habitable world to be acknowledged by all people as the only Son of God. What God or hero exposed as our Savior was to, our, so, to so sore conflict has raised the trophy of victory over every foe. After discussing how Psalm 10, 110 verse 1, and how even to this day Christ is honored as a king by his followers throughout the world, he writes, It is admitted that when in recent times the appearance of our Savior Jesus Christ had become known to all men, there immediately made its appearance a new nation, a nation confessedly not small and not dwelling in some corner of the earth, but the most numerous and pious of all nations, indestructible and unconquerable, because it always receives assistance from God. This nation, thus suddenly appearing at the time appointed by the inscrutable counsel of God, is the one which has, honored, which has been honored by all with the name of Christ. Following this, he cites Genesis 12.3 regarding the Abrahamic promise of Christ's blessing all nations. Eusebius later states, Long since had his passion as well as his advent in the flesh been predicated by the prophets. The time, too, of his incarnation had been foretold, and the manner in which the fruits of iniquity and proflagrancy so ruinous to the works and ways of righteousness should be destroyed, and the whole world partake of the virtues of wisdom and sound discretion through the almost universal prevalence of those principles of conduct which the Savior would promulgate over the minds of men, whereby the worship of God should be confirmed and the rites of superstition abolished. Athanasius, 8296-372 Athanasius has been called the patron saint of postmillennialism. 
he was certain of the victory of Christ for the now. The Savior works so great among men, and day by day is invisibly persuading so great a multitude from every side, both from them that dwell in Greece and in foreign lands, to come over to his faith, and to, and to all to obey his teaching. For wherever Christ is named and his faith, there all idolatry is dis- dispossessed, and all imposture of evil spirits is exposed, and any spirit is unable to endure even the name. Nay, even on barely hearing it flies and disappears. But this work is not of that of one dead, but one that lives, and especially of God. In fact, regarding idols, Christ chases them away, and by his power prevents their even appearing, yea, and is being confessed by them all to be the Son of God. Athanasius goes on to exult in Christ's continuing victory. The Savior does daily so many works, drawing men to religion, persuading to virtue, teaching of immorality, leading on to a desire for heavenly things, revealing the knowledge of the Father, inspiring strength to meet death, shewing himself to each one, and displacing the godlessness of idolatry, and the gods and spirits of the unbelievers can do none of these things, but rather show themselves dead at the presence of Christ, their pomp being reduced to impotence and vanity, whereas by the sign of the cross all magic is stopped, and all witchcraft brought to naught. All the idols are being deserted and left, and every unruly pleasure is checked, and everyone is looking up from earth to heaven, for the Son of God is living and active, and works day by day, and brings about the salvation of all. But death is daily proved to have lost all his power, and idols and spirits are proved to be dead rather than Christ. Athanasius applies prophecies of the triumph of Christ to the church age, and even rhetorically asks, But what king that ever was before he had strength to call father or mother reigned and gained a triumph over his enemies? He then writes, All heathen, at any rate from every region, abjuring their hereditary tradition and the impiety of idols, are now placing their hope in Christ and enrolling themselves under him. He continues, But if the Gentiles are honoring the same God that gave the law to Moses and made the promise to Abraham, and whose were the Jews dishonored, they are, why are the Jews ignorant, or rather why do they choose to ignore that the Lord foretold by the scriptures has shown forth upon the world, and appeared in it to, to it in bodily form, as the scripture said. What then has not come to pass that Christ must do? What is left unfulfilled that the Jews should not disbelieve with impunity? For if I say, which is just that we actually see, there is no longer king, nor prophet, nor Jerusalem, nor sacrifice, nor vision among them. But even the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God, and the Gentiles, leaving their godlessness, are now taking refuge with the God of Abraham, through the word, even our Lord Jesus Christ, then it must be plain, even to those who are exceedingly obstinate, that the Christ is come, and that he has illuminated absolutely all with his light. So one can fairly refute the Jews by these and other arguments from the divine scriptures. It is right for you to realize, and take as a sum of what, is, what we have already stated, and to marvel at exceedingly, namely, that since the Savior has come among us, idolatry not only has no longer increased, but what there was in but what there was is diminishing and gradually coming to an end and not only does the wisdom of the greeks no longer advance but what there is is now fading away and to sum the matter up behold now the savior's doctrine is everywhere increasing while all idolatry and everything opposed to the faith of christ is daily dwindling and losing power and falling for as when the sun has come darkness no longer prevails but if any be still left anywhere it is driven away 
So now that the divine appearing of the word of God has come, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are illuminated by his teaching. The great progress of the gospel is expected, according to Athanasius' view of Scripture. Isaiah 11.9, Matthew 28.19, John 6.45. And then from Dan to Bathsheba was the law pronounced, and in Judah only God was known. But now unto all the earth has gone forth their voice, and all the earth has been filled with the knowledge of God, and the, and the disciples have been made disciples of all the nations. And now is fulfilled what is written, they are to be all taught of God. The adumbrations of the ultimate Pacific influence of the gospel are being felt in this in his day. Who then is he that has done this? Or who is he that has united in peace men that hated one another? Save the beloved Son of the Father, the common Savior of all, even Jesus Christ, who by his own love underwent all things for our salvation. For even from of old it was prophesied of the peace he was to usher in. Where the scripture says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their pikes into sickles. And nation shall not take the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And this is at least not incredible, insomuch as even now these barbarians, who had innate savagery of manners, while they still sacrificed to idols of their country, are mad against one another, and cannot endure to be a single hour without weapons. But when they hear the teachings of Christ, straight away, instead of fighting, they turn to husbandry, Instead of arming their hands with weapons, they raise them in prayer, and in a word, in place of fighting among themselves, henceforth they arm against the devil and against spirits, so doing these by the self-restraint and virtue of soul. Many other such references could be cited from Athanasius. There is insufficient space at this point to do so. The most influential theologian among the ancient church, fathers, has yet to be heard from, Augustine, and he was no premillennialist. Augustine. AD 354-430. Augustine looms as the greatest Christian thinker of the early church. Although he is often assumed to hold views that, have, that correspond more closely to amillennialism, there is evidence of postmillennial type thinking in his writings, as scholars have noted. Historic premillennialist Erickson admits, Augustine is postmillennial and that all three millennial positions have been held virtually throughout church history. He cites, for, he cites as evidence for Augustine's postmillennialism, Augustine's sermon 259, verse 2. A number of statements in Book 18 of the City of God certainly give the appearance of postmillennial optimism. Of Nahum 1.14 and 2.1, Augustine states, Moreover, we already see the graven and molten things, that is, the idols of the false gods, exterminated through, through the gospel and given up to the oblivion of the, as of the grave, and we know that this prophecy is fulfilled in this very thing. City of God, 1831. The tents of, of Ethiopia shall be greatly afraid, and the tents of the land of Midian, that is, even those nations which are not under the Roman authority, being suddenly terrified by the news of thy wonderful work, shall become a Christian people. Wert thou angry at the rivers, O Lord? Or was thy fury against the rivers? Or was thy rage against the sea? This is said because he does not now come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Passage 18.32 He comments on Haggai 2.6 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet one little while, and I will shake the heaven, and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will move all nations, and all desired of all nations shall come. The fulfillment of this prophecy is partly already seen, and in part hoped for in the, in, in the end. 
So we shall see all nations moved to the faith, and the fulfillment of what follows. And the desire of all nations shall come, is looked for at his last coming. For ere a man can desire and wait for him, they must believe and love him. City of God, passage 1835. His comments on Psalm 2, Psalm 2 could also be cited. Medieval Postmillennialists Somewhat later in history, but still pre-Whitby, is the case of the medieval Roman Catholic Joachim of Flores, 1145 through 1202. Several non-postmillennial scholars cite him as postmillennialist, two to his view of a coming outpouring of the Spirit initiating the age of the Spirit. As Cominga puts it, in fact, modern postmillennialism of the orthodox type with its expectation of a glorious final church age brought about through the ordinary operation of the word and spirit embodies nothing but this pure church ideal dissociated from Joachim's expectation of a future coming of the Holy Spirit. Strangely, Walward points to Joachim as a postmillennialist, then speaks of postmillennialism originating in the writings of Daniel Whitby, despite Whitby's writing five centuries later. Other postmillennialists before Whitby include the following Franciscans Peter John Olivi, circa 1297, and Alberto di Cascal, 1305. Dominicans, Dominicans, I don't know. Gerhardinus di Burgo, 1252, Melchid of Maddenburg, 1280, Fra Dal- Dal- Dalsino, 1330, another Roman Catholic scholar, Aldenus of Villanova, and the forerunner of John Huss, Jan Militz of Kreimzer, 1367. A century and a half before Whitby, John Calvin, 1509-1564, clearly held an optimistic prophetic views that are commonly associated with postmillennialism. Such postmillennial expectations may be found at various places in his commentaries, such as Isaiah 2, Matthew 24, and Romans 11. John Calvin's commentaries give some scholars cause for concluding that he anticipated the spread of the gospel and true religion to the ends of the earth. Indeed, in his prefiguratory address to the king of Francis of France, Calvin writes, Our doctrine must tower, unvanquished above all the glory and above all the might of the world, for it is not of us, but of the living God and his Christ, whom the Father has appointed king to rule from sea to sea, from the rivers even to the ends of the earth. And he is so to rule as to smite the whole earth with its iron and brazen strength, with its gold and silver brilliance, shattering it with the rod of his mouth as an earthen vessel, just as the prophets have, have prophesied concerning the magnificence of his reign. This is not the language which is commonly associated with eschatological pessimism, and it was adopted by Calvin's Puritan and postmillennial successors. They had good reasons to see in Calvin a postmillennial optimism. I have already mentioned the most important systematizer of English postmillennialism, Thomas Brightman, 1562 through 1607. In addition to him, there was a growing and influential number of English Puritans that held postmillennial views, well before Whitby, as a number of important historical works have amply demonstrated. We think of Thomas Goodwin, 1600 through 1679. John Owen, 1616 through 1683, William Gouge, 1575 through 1653, John Cotton, 1585 through 1652, Thomas Brooks, circa 1662, James Renwick, 
dated 1688, John Howe, 1678, William Perkins, 1558 through 1602, and others. John Cotton's The Church's Resurrection, or the opening of the fifth and sixth verses of the twentieth chapter of the of Revelation, written in 1642, was quite influential and shows obvious influence by Brightman. The Westminster Standards in the 1640s set forth also a postmillennial hope. The king's The kingship of Christ is said to be the evidence to God's people by Christ's overcoming all their enemies and powerful, powerfully ordering all things for His own glory. Larder Catechism 45. Indeed, Christ ex executed the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Shorter Catechism 26. The evidence of his exaltation is made visible to his church when he does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies. Larger Catechism 54. In the Westminster Standards, the Lord's Prayer speaks of the second petition, faithfully calling up God, that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, and the gospel propagated throughout the whole world. The Jews called, and the fulfillment of the Gentiles brought in. This follows the first petition, in which prayer is righteously made that He will prevent. And remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him, and by his overruling providence, direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. Congregationalism's Savoy de Declaration of 1658 is a strong and unambiguous postmillennial document, promising that in the later days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the churches of Christ being enlarged and edified through. A free and plentiful communication of light and grace, they shall enjoy in this world a more peaceful, more quiet, peaceful, and glorious condition than they have ever enjoyed. After a lengthy and informative discussion of a host of names, premillennialist Crominga has concluded: In actual fact, there is a quite a strain of postmillennialism in Reformed theology, from Coercius, 1603 to 1669 onward. Reformed theology can therefore, in view of this phenomena, Not well be said to have been uniformly amillennialian, as rather frequently assumed, and as was shown in the preceding chapter, some of the great reform scholars of the last hundred years have been postmillennial. Simply put, Daniel Whitby was not the founder of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism's distinctive theme of gospel victory in history is hoary with age. Representative adherence to postmillennialism, as in the earlier chapter, here I will summarily list some noteworthy adherence to postmillennialism. In the ancient church, Eusebius A.D. 260 through 340, Athanasius A.D. 296 through 372, and Augustine A.D. 354 430. In the modern church, J.A. Alexander, O.T. Allis, Greg Bonson, Albert Barnes, David Brown, John Calvin, Roderick Campbell, Robert L. Dabney, John Jefferson Davis, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, A.A. Hodge, Charles Hodge. Errol Hulse, Francis Nigel Lee, Marcellus Kirk, J. Gresham Machen, George C. Milliden, Ian Murray, John Murray, Gary North, John Owen, R. J. Rushdoony, Steve Schlissel, W. J. T. Shedd, Norman Shepherd, Augustus H. Strong, J. H. Thornwell, Richard C. Trench, B. B. Warfield, and many of the Puritans. Conclusion: Systematization of the various theological loci. Naturally developed over time, engaging the gifts and minds of the spiritually sensitive Christian leaders, 
Most biblical theologians would agree that eschatology has certainly been one of the loci that has undergone the most development, development in history. As I indicated earlier, eschatology is extremely deep and involved, intertwining itself with, very, with the very essence of Christianity itself. Because of this, the antiquity of an eschatological system such as such is not absolutely essential to its, or, to its orthodoxy. Nevertheless, the eschatological fa factors in Scripture cannot have been without some apparent impact on the nascent development of, the early of early Christendom's perception of the flow of history. An eschatology lacking any historical rooting in antiquity is rightly suspect. Much popular literature leaves the impression that postmillennial thought is a recent novelty. I have shown that postmillennialism is not without historical precedent in the early centuries of the Christian church. Indeed, it has been the framework of some of the noted minds of the church the crucial elements of postmillennialism, the presence of a biblically informed, historically relevant, and ultimately optimistic temporal hope, is clearly present in antiquity. Furthermore, the postmillennial position has been held in more recent centuries by noted and devout defenders of the faith. Postmillennialism is not a fringe eschatology. It has been particularly influenced in Reformed circles, as the list on page 91 demonstrates. When postmillennialism is properly defined, it expresses the glorious hope of all scripture. When its advocates are carefully read, its antiquity and influence may be better understood. The widespread confusion regarding postmillennialism's nature, origins, and advocates is to be lamented. The modern church, sapped of the power of hope, largely through poor exegesis and lack of an understanding of church history, is the weaker for it.